So we are going to be in the book of Esther today. We are going to be reading Esther 2. If you do not have a Bible, there are blue Bibles under your chairs. That is our gift to you. If you are reading out of the blue Bible, it will be page 242. After these things, when the anger of King Ashwaris had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had said what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins in the harem in Susa, the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jahir, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So when the king's orders and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, and who had, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to, to go into King Ashwaris after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In this evening that she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of their concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther of the daughter of Abihail and the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her own daughter, to go into the king, she was asked for nothing except what Haggai said to the king's eunuch, and who had charge of the woman advised. Now Esther was winning favor in, in all eyes of who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ashwaris to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, and the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all women, and she won grace and favor to his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes and provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashwaris. 
And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And this was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of Lord. You may be seated. You remembered. Wow. <laughs> Just so you know, that's a one-off. You don't have to do that every week. But thank you. Kyler, great job on the first time up here. This Hosting a church thing is not hosting like hospitality, doing the announcement thing is the hardest position in all the church, harder than being an elder. It's very uh, scary. So Kyler, well done. Uh, well done. Uh, welcome to Redemption Church North Mountain. I'm the, one of the pastors here. Xavier is preaching at Redemption Pure right now. Uh, so you get me, you'll get Xavier next week. But uh, if you're newer to the church and this church is your home but not fully your home yet, one of the ways you do that is we have membership class coming up. We're going to talk through everything we believe, everything we do. It's on Monday nights. There's child care provided and you get to meet with pastors, elders and just talk through, is this my church? This doesn't make you a better Christian. It just makes you a part of the church family that God is creating and cultivating here at North Mountain. So if that's you, if that at all stirs inside you, like I want to take the next step, membership class would be the next step there. One church announcement. I want to just give a giving update. Uh, very encouraging. So we just wrapped up our wrapped up numbers from last year as we worked through our finance team. So this is pretty simple. So our 2023 budget was 600000 So the way we get that is what was given in 2022, that becomes our budget. So that's been Redemption's historical way of stewarding what God gives them. Our giving last year was 760000 plus around 40000 given to special things like the uh, Advent offering, camp scholarships, benevolence, stuff like that. So uh, we gave over 200000 more than what our budget was, which is just phenomenal. And just so you know, one side note, that was our third year as a church plant. Redemption's history with planting churches has been a church has been receiving funds for the first three years of their existence. You usually don't become on your own till fourth year, but last year we received nothing from Redemption. We received it from generous, committed, sacrificial people in this room. So thank you very much. One thing to note, our expenses, so that's always important. What did we spend actually last year was 608. So why eight over? Just so you know, midway through the year, we're seeing projections. Are like, we're we're going to have a lot of money extra. This building, we could give this building a billion dollars, and I would still be frustrated by lots of things. <laughs> but we wanted to paint at a sign. So we, in mid-year, we talked to, as elders and then to the finance team of Redemption, say, hey, can we go over a little bit and spend some money mid-year on some building updates? They said yes. So the, otherwise, we would have been... 20,000 below budget even with that. So, so our, twi- our 2024 budget is going to be 760,000. That's what was given last year. One note, our giving goes to lots of different things, under resource places, house of refuge, local outreach, obviously to the building and the personnel. But one of the things that 40,000 is going towards is Advent offering, which is planting churches in Sacramento. Keith and his wife from Redemption Tucson went to plant that. And then Juan and Tina from Redemption Alhambra are going to South Phoenix, Cesar Chavez High School area, to plant their church. And Juan, I texted him, said, hey, man, it looks great. Uh, and he sent us this video just to give this church a big thank you from Juan Chavez and the South Phoenix crew. So here's from Mr. Juan Chavez. Redemption North Mountain. My name is Juan Chavez, and I had the privilege of joining you all at a Sunday service during Advent where you graciously picked up an Advent offering for a church plant that we are beginning here in South Phoenix. I'm recording this video from Cesar Chavez High School where we run a program through a nonprofit organization called AZ Reach. 
where we're mentoring and building relationships with high school students and their families. And we've been doing this work for the last 12 years. And finally, the Lord is birthing a church in this community. And you all are partnering with us in that. Through this generous gift that you have blessed us with, we are able to continue doing a beautiful work, a kingdom work in this community. And on behalf of my family and I and the entire congregation, I wanna say thank you for blessing us in this way. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for remembering us and please continue to pray for this work that God has called us to. We are grateful to have brothers and sisters across the city who are standing with us, who are believing in us and who are praying for us as we are praying for you that God would continue to bless your ministry. He would continue to bless your congregation, that that community around North Mountain would be blessed with the gospel, with the good news, with the light of Christ. So keep shining that light, keep going. And church, thank you so much for blessing us in this way. So Juan says thank you, and I just want to say thank you. That Just to those numbers again, $760,000 is a lot of money. And I just know I'm in a unique position of being sort of one of the main recipients of generosity and sacrificial giving in this church. So it's never lost on me what my role uh, requires. And it requires the Lord and the Spirit, but it also requires people giving sacrificially to do this, to have church. So just thank you on behalf of my family. They'll be here at the second service, but thank you. This church has been more generous than I could have ever expected. Like church planning, it's like scary for a lot of reasons. One of those is somebody's got to pay the bills. And North Mountain pays the bills and above and beyond the bills. So thank you. I do love this church a lot. Uh, just thank you from the bottom of my heart. So enough sappy. Let's get into Esther, please. Esther chapter 2. Um, so last week, quick catch up. King Xerxes is this real historical figure, a king. He gathers the people to have a party, mainly to gather support, to say, I want to go fight Greece again. I want to go fight those Greeks again and win and defeat them. Chapter 2 now picks up. Let's read. After these things, this is about three years after the drunken fest we witnessed last week. When the anger of King Xerxes, remember it says that, but I'm going to say Xerxes every time, had abated. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel. Under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them, and let young women who please the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So we're right where we left off. It's about three years later. He's no longer drunk. He's sober. And a lot of people think he regrets his decision because he actually enjoyed Vashti for whatever reasons. And now the same story. He's gathered his people together. He's like, what are we going to do about this problem? The whole, the whole book of Esther takes about 10 years worth of time. So we're about to walk through this story. We're going to see two new characters, Mordecai and Esther. And then we're going to talk about discipleship from the lens of Esther. And here's my big idea as I've been thinking about this. Discipleship in an assimilated and compromised reality. Here's what we see. Is we see compromised people, assimilated people, people that we can't really see things that are respectable about them. We're going to watch these characters and we're going to learn from them as Christians 2,000 plus years later. So let's meet these characters. Mordecai, verse 5, let's meet him. 
Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemel, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's just tribes of uh, Jacob, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So here's his introduction. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. What does Mordecai mean? It means follower of Marduk, who is a Babylonian god. So we meet now possibly the good guy of the story, and he's introduced as Mordecai, who's in Susa, in the citadel. What's the citadel? It's like the center of influence. He's at the center of culture in the Persian Empire. His name means follower of Marduk, follower of not God Yahweh. Meet Mordecai. Well, how did he get there? Verse 6. Remember, listen to the verbs. This is simply a story. The verbs carry the story. Verse 6 said, who had been carried away from Jerusalem. How did Mordecai get to this position in Persia with the name follower of Marduk? He was carried away into Babylonian captivity, which is a key part. Other than Moses, it's the biggest storyline in the Old Testament. So if you have no familiarity with it, you're missing 40% of the Old Testament. He's in Babylonia, captivity, living like in the D.C., the New York, the L.A., right at the center of everything that happens in Persia. This is Mordecai, character one. Character two. Let's read verse seven. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This is where the storytelling of Old Testament writers and the whole Bible is just magnificent. This is the next character. Esther or Hadassah? Esther or Hadassah? Which one do you want to use? Hadassah means righteous. Esther is another shout-out to a Babylonian god, Ishtar, but it also means hidden or hide away. So now meet Esther, righteous or hiding one. Which one is it? We'll find out. How is she described? Let's just let the Bible be what the Bible wants to be. It's telling it like it is. The only way she's described as a beautiful figure. Meet Esther, Hadassah. Very great body. That's like bro translation. Just, we get too churchy in church and we're like, you know, that's what's being said of this lady here. What's the verb describing her? Verse 7, the only thing saying is she was taken. She took her. She was a winner of father Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai, center of civilization. Esther, hidden or righteous, don't know. She's got a beautiful figure, and she was taken. Just stop right here. Let the story speak for itself. Are these people that we think might be the good ones? Here's what I think at a minimum we could say if this is where we stopped. They seem to be victims of a larger thing going on. They've both been taken. Let's just keep reading. Let the story unfold the way God wants it to. Verse 8 through verse 11. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, remember, he misses Vashti, he needs another woman. And when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge over the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with the seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now this section, Esther is taken again. Taken. And the first guy, a eunuch, pleases him. And not in a sexual way, just she finds favor with the first sort of ring of influence she gets to. However, verse 10 says, she had not made known her people or her kindred. She's a Jew. And no one knows that. The Old Testament law was given to the Jews for this reason. So everyone would know that they were different. You were not to hide your Jewishness. You were not to be boastful, but you were meant to be a city on a hill, a light in a dark world, salt of the earth, different through the law code that God gave them. And she's keeping that hidden. Esther, stored away. And what about Mordecai? The only thing said about here is he's the one who told her, keep this hidden. Now, stop here. Do we like these characters yet? Mordecai's a little more vague. Esther's kind of coming out of the darkness. We're starting to see a little more. It's, I'm working my way through Better Call Saul. It's a little bit like Better Call Saul. Every character and flashback and whatever, you're like, I like him, but I don't like him. I like her, but I don't like her. And as you read the Old Testament, you're going to say, I like, I don't like, talking about the same person. Let's keep reading. Verse 12 through 18. Remember, she's been brought. She pleased the first ring. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and anointments for women, so a year-long beauty pageant, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. 15. Esther. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. She's listening to the advice there. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. 
Who is Esther now? You see these parallel realities, the hidden one, and she seems super sharp. One person said calculated. She's planning her way. She's winning favor every step of the way. She knows she has something that men like to look at, and she's getting to certain places. Just Here's a verse that I, some of you women have had thrown at you. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It seems like Esther never read this. <laughs> because she's using her charm and her youth to win favor every step of the way. But at the same time, all throughout this, the main verb associated with her is she was taken, she was taken, she was taken, she was taken. And no amount of older lady saying, listen up, have you read Proverbs 31, young lady? Seems to be changing anything. And in the midst of all, she keeps taken, taken, taken. Verse 17, I just want to see the final moment here. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then he gave a great feast. It was Esther's feast. He granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. She won favor. She was given a crown. Why? Because she won favor amongst all the virgins. So not to overly connect dots, but what you think happened is happening. If this news story comes out in modern-day America, here's the words associated with it. Systematic rape, abuse of power, male chauvinism at its very worst. As woman after woman comes to please the king. The law in this day was once a woman had relations with the king, she could be with no one else. So she's forever tainted. And then Esther is a part of that. Now, stop right there. Is Esther good or bad? Is Mordecai good or bad? Denzel, are you good or bad? I don't know. Is Esther good or bad? I don't know. The words I think that fit best in chapter 2 is they are both assimilated and they are both compromised. This is not the story of Daniel who keeps this Jewish name and has this heroic no to the king. These people have been taken and then continue to stumble their way into Persian-controlled, non-God-honoring society. One author says it this way. It's on the screen. There was a Jew named Mordecai living in Susa, the citadel. There was a Jew with a Persian name living at the center of power of a conquering empire. There was one of God's people who had lost or discarded his identity and embraced the way of life in a foreign world. And the same could be said of Esther. And then the author goes, author goes on to say, and therein, Mordecai's story, Esther's story, lies each one of us. Assimilated, compromised. Are we the righteous one? Are we hiding? Yes and yes. So what do we do with this story? How do we take this book, which is God's spoken word to us, and apply it to our lives and our context in a way that does justice to what's actually happening and actually is what the Spirit wants for us? 
Here's what I take from this story. I want to just walk through three truths of our discipleship, modern day, based off what I read in this story. So here's the first truth if you're a note taker. Truth number one, all of us must embrace discipleship as unlearning. One author, Mark Batterson, a pastor in D.C., says this, Half of learning is learning. The other half of learning is unlearning. Unfortunately, unlearning is twice as hard as learning. So I'm trying to get into running again. I go to the gym a little bit. I'm never going to brag because I know I'm not that guy. But here's the thing. I've never once stretched or warmed up before any of those activities. I'm meeting with Jack. He's like, I'm getting back into running. He describes his warm-up. I'm like, tell me about this warm-up thing you do. And he does all the things that you real run, runners do. So I went to the gym. If you ever go to US and see me, I'm the guy on the wall trying to learn how to do what you're supposed to be doing along. I don't think it's going to catch. That ship has sailed. I've been working out since high school days, and I've never, ever warmed up if given the choice. So I'm just a, I'm going to be crippled older man. I get it. <laughs> why? Because unlearning is so much harder than learning. This is why some of you endlessly love Bible studies. Because it's easy to learn. It's hard to be a good husband and unlearn bad habits. Unlearning is hard. That's the work of discipleship. Who is Mordecai? Who is Esther? Is Mordecai the follower of Marduk? And is Esther the hidden one? Or is Mordecai something greater? And is Esther really the righteous one? That's the story of Esther. What is discipleship? It's a whole lot of unlearning. And here's a trend I've been noticing with young men that I meet with. Is there's like this identity crisis. And some of them can articulate it. And say, I just don't know who I am. I don't know what my identity is. And I can't relate. That wasn't part of my story. But the more I talk, it's like, I don't know who I am. 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 And some of them are doing healthy things to build their identity, and some of them aren't. But I just want you to say, that is discipleship, is relearning your identity. Mordecai, who are you? Follower of Marduk or something greater? Esther, do you want to hide or do you want to be righteous? We are all unlearning and learning. That is the process of discipleship. Following Jesus as rabbi means you unlearn and you learn. Like, the Christian life can be boiled down to two words, repentance, faith. I wrote this down. Repentance is unlearning a life of assimilation and compromise. And just, just to be, like, give you a little grace and me grace. For a lot of life, that's not your fault. You are who you are because of decisions made long before you and around you. But you're still repenting of all those things and their effect on you. And then faith is this, relearning a life of faithfulness, truth, in love. What is discipleship? It's a whole lot of unlearning. Young men, you are given options on who's going to build your identity. You've got semi-decent ones. You've got terrible ones. Andrew Tate is a character I keep seeing lots of people send me videos about. A godless, horrible human being who has the hearts and minds of so many young men. And somebody's like, who's Andrew Tate? I'm going to look up. Do not listen to what he says. I bought a book he read, and it is terrible, like evil. 
but he has the hearts because we live in a world that has squashed out any notion of masculinity. So even a toxic version is better than nothing. I want that. We've got to unlearn, unlearn, unlearn. Just to tell you, like, I think Jesus is with me on this. His most famous sermon is a bunch of unlearning and learning moments. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to read a section. Verse 43 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Unlearn that. But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. You've heard it said, I say to you, discipleship is unlearning and relearning. Do not limit it to just, I got to learn some Bible and I just got some facts I need in my life. It's unlearning your life at an identity level. Mordecai, Esther, all of us. It is a whole lot of unlearning. That's the first truth we must embrace. Here's the second one from this story. We must embrace discipleship through our multi-layered identity. What do I mean by this? Let's just play a little sanctified imagination game with this Bible. Assume Esther, somewhere in this process, shows up to your ministry or your counseling room. Okay? We do a Titus Moms, we do a women's thing, and Esther, who's on month seventh of getting dolled up enough to go spend a night with the king, shows up. Okay? We're all in that space. What do we do to help her? Knock it off, young lady. Stop sinning. Let me just read Proverbs 31 for you real quick. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is fading. What do you think this is? Like, I'm being honest. Because we navigate life with Esther's way more than anyone else. And Mordecai's like, so complicated. Like, I can get to where you got to in life based off your upbringing. And we have sort of chintzy, thin versions of discipleship that don't account for the complexity of being a human. Especially in churches like ours that hold this to be true. Because then you get people say, I'm just a Bible guy. Say, yeah, me too. But we're, we're more than just Bible people. Like we need steak and water and sunlight and relationships. And this is the source of all that is true, good, and beautiful. But we're not just walking heads on sticks that just need more Bible information. Would you tell Esther, you're just a victim, sweetie? That's another swing. Knock it off, read Proverbs. Or this is not your fault at all. You're completely a victim in this. Which is where I lean. Because I don't have daughters. I only have sons. When I hear stuff with women, I'm like, I'm, that's not my deal. I have one woman I've got to figure out. So I just defer to whatever the female says. Like, yeah, you're probably right, even if she's crazy. <laughs> but this is the world we live in. I feel like the culture we live in has squeezed every possible bucket that we could bring to Esther down to one thing, and it's victim. Well, she's obviously a victim. It's the oppressed, it's the oppressor. That's why we're the most sensitive, 
thin-skinned group of people that has ever existed in humanity. Write that down and quote me all you want. Why? Because it's victim, or I don't want to talk about the other stuff. I'm a victim in this. Esther is a victim. But if she's only a victim, her discipleship is stunted, and it will end prematurely. Namely, she won't get to maturity. So what do we do with this? Here's what I think we need to add to our repertoire as Christians. Here's sort of the layers, I think, that everyone in here who loves Jesus is a saint, is the New Testament word. You are a loved son or daughter of the Most High. Some of you like need to spend a lot of time on that. Every one of you is a sufferer, a victim. Stuff has been done to you that should never be done, and it's been done, and it's caused damage, and there's residual effects. You are a sufferer. You are a victim, Esther. You were taken. You were taken. You were carried. You were taken. You were carried. But every one of us is also a sinner with a rebellious heart and an inclination away from that which is good, right, and beautiful. And then every one of us is a steward, a learner, learning on this path to life. As Ozzy learns to write and spell, and spell stuff phonetically, and oftentimes cuss words come out based off him trying to learn. That is not sin. Hey, buddy, let me tell you, there's some silent letters in our language. Let me add some things here so that this doesn't sound so offensive, my man. (laughs) Stewarding the young learner. But Esther was all of these. She was loved by God. She was righteous. She was also a sufferer. She had been taken, taken, taken. She was also a sinner who had rebelled, hid her identity, stuffed her Jewishness. This is true of all of us. You need some categories like this to work with. Now, just let me say one pastoral thing about this. Leave this on the screen. I don't always want to do this, but it just seems to be how it plays out, pitting older and younger against A lot of older people I talk to, the sufferer piece is like not even a thing. Like this is why I'm having lunch with pastor friends in the area and a pastor who pastors a church of primarily older people. He's like pulling his hair out. He's like, I just wish some of my people would get some counseling. And the pastor of a mostly young church is like, I'm so sick of hearing about counseling. We got counselors for our counseling. It's like, and I'm watching older generation just stuff it. It's not really pain. This is, we went through a war, another war, another war. Like my mom is the daughter of an Irish drunk, a Mexican who got sent across the border during the Depression, shipped off to family members, was raised in a house with multiple divorce, alcoholism everywhere. And you ask my mom, like, how was your life? She's like, it was fine. I don't really want to talk about it. And then I talked to a younger person. How was your day? Well, let me tell you. You sit down and write this. I stub my toe first thing in the morning. <laughs> my mom was not compassionate whatsoever. <laughs> my professor. It's nice to be kind of middle-aged because I can just throw darts both sides. <laughs> I get it. The point is we need all those. Younger people, you've been reared in a victimhood culture. 
your victim in some ways, some deep, painful, terrible ways. But you are not just a victim. You are a saint by the grace of Jesus. You are a sinner by your own choice and volition. And you will inflict harm on others, and they will have stories about how they are a victim because of your choices in their life. And you are a steward. As we read this story, do not squeeze these characters down to fit into good guy, bad guy. Let the texture of humanity and discipleship speak for itself. Final truth, and we'll end here. Embrace God's providence as a mystery to behold rather than a riddle to solve. I said last week, you never see God. It's never mentioned, never brought up. You could read this as a pagan and see nothing about God in this. You could read this with blind, non-spiritual eyes and never once see God. But I just want to pivot and start to sense God's fingertips and hand behind the scenes working all this for his good. Verse 19. How does this little chapter end? With some happenstance situation with this guy Mordecai. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Like, here's one way to ask God his involvement. Where are you, God, as Esther is taken, 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 taken? There's going to be lots of opportunities to be like, God, where you could have inserted yourself in a more real, tangible way and done something different. And then you could read past stuff like this and not let it hit any radar on you. But then Mordecai just so happens to be sitting, overhearing a conversation of two men who are sick of the king and they want him killed. What's that? And he just so happens to have a close family relative who is now queen and in a position to hear from little old Mordecai. And he tells his family member, and she tells the king, and this begins the turn of the favor for Mordecai and Esther. What do we call this? It's called God's providence. God causes, God allows everything that happens. God causes, God allows everything that happens. In the story of Esther and in our life, when it's good stuff, it's like, yes! My house got a pool, and I just wanted a pool, and by chance I got a pool. Praise God. We're at basketball games for the kids yesterday, and we had these crazy moments of people connecting with our church. This lady who brings her grandson, we've been praying, like trying to get a feel for where they're at. She came up to my wife, just so you know, I had a dream about your church. Is that weird? My wife kind of smiled and said, no. Why? Because God causes or allows everything. I'll celebrate those moments all day long. The problem comes in 
as you're watching Esther be taken as a young girl to go do things young girls shouldn't be doing. God, where are you? If you're big enough, loving enough, fix this. That's where the problem comes in. That's a human problem for all of us. We'll champion his providence when it works out for us, and we will, where are you, God, when it does not. That is human nature. One of the authors I'm reading as I prepare for this, he says, we arrive at this timeless ministry. The tension in the midst of God's love, power, and presence and evil in the world has burdened believers for thousands of years. And then he goes on to say this. Most of humanity has seen it, God's providence, as a riddle to solve. This was the approach of Job and his friends. I'm reading Job in my quiet time right now. It's crazy. It's ignorance on fire. It's stupidity upon stupidity upon stupidity, all tied around this. How do I solve this? And God says, where were you? If it's a mystery and not a riddle, then it's something we behold and trust to God. Therein lies the faith that is so hard. You embrace the mystery. I don't have to tell you as a pastor, embrace the mystery of when God's providence works out for your pay raise and your child being born healthy. We embrace that naturally. I have to, as a pastor, tell you to embrace the mystery when those things don't happen and the flip side happens. That's where we all sit. And just so you know, if it wasn't for my Christian faith, I would go nuts in that tension. And there's only one thing in my Christian faith that gives me utmost assurance. It does not mean it's settled and every moment I trust. But here's what Christians believe uniquely. Here's the gospel. In ten words, the sinless one suffered so you might be a saint. As we think about, am I a saint in this? Am I a sinner? Am I a sufferer? Like, here's what Christians believe. I'm all that. But God could have sat back and just watched and dictating like a chess player. But he entered in. The sinless one suffered. Why? So that I would not be a child of wrath, but a child beloved by God the Father. That's the gospel. So as we wonder and sit in this mystery and try to solve the riddle that is not solvable, do not lose sight of the gospel. The sinless one, Jesus Christ, who will we not see once in this book? We won't see God, the Spirit, or Jesus. So we as Christians must do the work to connect it to the rest of the story. And that is the rest of the story. There is suffering in your life. Some of you are like sitting in the deepest pain right now. And I can't give you much. But I can show you Esther and say, hey, there is a mystery to this that none of us are going to solve. But there was a sinless one who stepped down into history and suffered for me for you so that we might be loved and not children of wrath anymore. Discipleship is not easy. Just to recap, part of discipleship is unlearning. What are you unlearning in this season of life? Discipleship is also multifaceted. You are a saint, you're a sinner, you're a sufferer, you're a steward. Which one of those do you need to focus on and think about in this season of life? And then finally, discipleship invites us into this mystery that God does not solve this side of heaven but he tells us to behold him in the mystery. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Esther. Thank you for just a a book that I haven't spent repetitive time in until now. 
And it's just a beautiful picture of our day and age, of an assimilated, of a compromised culture. And you, by your spirit, giving us the wisdom and the insight to find you where it seems like you're hidden. So God, I just pray for our church as we listen to Esther and Mordecai and watch them make decisions and have decisions made against and for them, that we would not get stuck in the story of good and bad, but we get brought up into the larger story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we are complex, but ultimately we're trying to follow you. So God, I pray this book helps us follow you more faithfully, more truthfully, and more lovingly. Spirit, make that true in our lives. Make it true even in real tangible ways this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.